I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Chris Payne. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Now, you're a sea technician, right? That's right. Uh, My title at UBC is sea technician, but I like to call myself oceanographic technician. So what is that? I help the ocean, well, help anyone in the department, but mainly the oceanographers do their research. So that means a lot of things. I do a lot of field work, a lot of lab work, a lot of sample analysis, a lot of um, maintaining equipment. Um, Basically, I do anything people need me to do to help get their research done. Great. Does that mean you spend a lot of time at sea? I spend, I maybe not so much in recent years, but I have spent tons of time at sea. I keep a, a log of it. I've spent 742 days on research cruises. Oh, wow. And an additional 553 days working on smaller boats of various kinds, hovercrafts, anything that's not a large research ship. So I've, that, that adds up to almost 1,300 days of my life spent on the water. Wait, UBC has a hovercraft? Uh, no, the Coast Guard does, and we've used it extensively for research. So uh, we have a number of projects that are difficult to access with our smaller boats, and the speed of the hovercraft just makes things easier. Um, there was a project many years ago that if you try to do it on a regular vessel would, with the distances involved would be a, a two-day ordeal, but the hovercraft going 40 knots can do it, do the whole thing in one day. And ever since then, people have used it. It's a, it's a really nice, stable platform to do work. Tons and tons of deck space. So it's got some disadvantages, but some real advantages when it comes to doing work at sea. Is it as much fun as it looks? Yeah. <laughs> See, why um, it's loud. Uh, we like to wear earplugs. I've, I'm doing my ears in in this job. I, I should be wearing earplugs all the time, and I don't. But yeah, the hovercraft is tons of fun. Why don't they put that in the advertising material for oceanography? <laughs> yeah, they should. Uh, all the lot of new students or work study students or people, we try to get people out because th- there is tons of space on board. And so it's a nice way to, hey, why don't you come and spend some time on the hovercraft for a day and help us out. Now, you mentioned uh, how many days and weeks and years you've spent at sea. Uh, do you consider yourself to be an early career professional, mid or uh, later career? At this point, I'd have to say later mid to late okay. i've i started doing this kind of work in let's see 1998 was my first cruise first and longest cruise 125 days at sea oh wow yeah no, was never, that? Uh, it was in the arctic i was uh, young and naive and and my uh supervisor at the time said Hey, I've got this cruise coming up. It's four months long and it's separated into four one month legs. How many do you want to do? And being the young go getter I was, I'm like, I don't know, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. I did 125 days straight at sea. Um, it was tons of fun. It was a great, wonderful, wonderful cruise. They certainly aren't all wonderful, but that one was really great. Wow, that's impressive. I'm curious, did you study oceanography or or what's your academic background? I didn't. We didn't have an oceanography program. So I did a bachelor's at the University of Ottawa in biology. And then I went on to do a master's at McGill University, again in the biology department, because there was no oceanography department. 
I think at the time there were only two oceanographers at McGill. There was a, a biological oceanographer. That's who I did my degree with in, in, the, in the Department of Biology. And there was a chemical oceanographer over in the equivalent of Earth and Ocean Science. I know it wasn't, it was a, what department was that? Yeah. Anyways, I forget. <laughs> it's not really relevant. Uh, why oceanography? What was it about the ocean that did it for you? Honestly, not necessarily the ocean, but the study of water. I really enjoyed being around water my whole life. And it, my, in my undergrad studying biology at University of Ottawa, in my second year, I took an um, ecology class. And this professor, Dr. Finley, was amazing. And he really inspired me. And one particular, I think there was only like one lecture or maybe one week of lectures on a small little subset of, of ecology called limnology, the study of lakes. And I just loved it. And I thought it was fascinating. And I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to study limnology. So for my honors research project, I worked with a professor who was doing limnology, learned all about lakes, and then went on from there. I, for my master's, I was doing more ocean-type work, although it was all lab-based. It was working with a, an oceanographer, and we were using seawater media and stuff. So, And then I kind of was just at the right place and the right time, and he had this project that I was telling you about in the Arctic for four months. I just finished my master's. I knew how to do the, the analyses that he needed to do on board. And so I, yeah, right place, right time after studying biology and, and lakes really. And then it snowballed from there. That's often how it goes. I find, um, people end up in careers they didn't plan on having. It's just that, one weird thing happened and sent them off in a whole new trajectory. Yeah. And I, so after working at McGill post grad school, I spent a summer at University of Montreal, but then I, I got a job in Atlanta of all places at Georgia Tech. I worked for Dr. Joe Montoya and I basically ran his lab for almost five years and he did real oceanography like we went on cruises to the indian ocean all across the atlantic several times the gulf of mexico so i basically planned and organized all those research expeditions and also ran his mass spec lab so yeah it's not anything i'd sort of planned five or ten years earlier but it just it worked out really well and then i was even though atlanta is closer to my hometown of, of Gatineau, Quebec. Um, it just being in the U S didn't feel quite like home. So I wanted to be back in Canada. And so I ended up in Vancouver, which is much farther away geographically, but feels a lot more like home. And, uh, again, a, a little bit of right place at the right time. I came here to work for Philippe and Maite and I was their technician for not even a year. I think it must've been six months or so and uh, at the time ram was retiring and they needed a c-tech and i had all the right experience and so right right place right time i got this job and that was 19 years ago perfect yeah. i'm glad you're here so am i <laughs> now when yeah. you, you keep saying cruises but you're not talking like my ties on the uh, leader deck, are you? No, though we have done that as well. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> on uh, one of the cruises on uh, this Curtis Suttles lab, we uh, br I brought a, a blender and some things to make mixed drinks. So after a good day of doing science, we uh, cracked open the... Uh, the good stuff and had uh, cocktails on the back deck. <laughs> no, but in general, it's uh, it's a lot of hard work. It's I've never been on an actual pleasure cruise. Um, it seems a bit strange to go on a cruise when I spend so much of my time on the water. 
Um, yeah, so it's, I, I use the word cruise, but I mean a research expedition. Excellent. Just wanted yeah. to clarify that point. Yeah, for sure. In your career, you've worked on tons of different projects um, and helped scientists make some amazing discoveries. Uh, are there any projects that stand out? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to use my first first thing I can think of is my I got to go in a submarine in the Gulf of Mexico down to 700 meters, and so that project was just for you know a 20 something year old kid doing oceanographic work. It was it was amazing. Um, it's a weird it's a bit timely right now given that this uh submarine just imploded uh when, last week but um uh it, it was really a, a great experience we were studying methane hydrates on the seafloor of the gulf of mexico and uh and so there were two dives a day and i i got to go down three times in the submarine so this this submarine doesn't exist anymore uh, I think it was retired in uh, 2011, but it was called the Johnson Sea Link, and it had uh, um, about a maybe six-foot diameter glass sphere in the front that had two people that sat in it, and then another compartment at the back that had another two people in it. So these are two se completely separate compartments. So in case anything ever happened in one of them, there's a complete backup set of ways to get to the surface and so the the back segment is basically a metal tube with a couple of little portholes and so my first two dives being a junior technician were in the back and staring out this tiny little porthole at fascinating stuff but then i on my third trip down i finally got to sit in the front in this 360 degree view of this everything and the seafloor and uh, it, it was just yeah uh, a really amazing project to be and just happened to be part of at the time so. sounds glorious sounds magical <laughs> yeah yeah one of my favorite pictures is uh there's not even any equipment or anything in it it's just looking up through the sphere up at the surface as we're descending and it's like a the color changes, right? As you know, in the ocean, the deeper you go, different wavelengths of light are attenuated to different extents. But it, so it looks like a greenish hue as you're looking up towards the surface. And it's like a, yeah, it's really quite the surreal looking picture. Um, and what are you working on right now? So the great thing about this job from my perspective is it's always changing. So right now there's um, not much work going on. We have a project on uh, microplastics that I'm helping out with. I mean, I'm basically driving the boat and operating the equipment, but it, it's, I feel like I'm still a part of it. We go out on the Fraser River and not Vancouver Harbor every month. We're gonna do that for the next year or so, taking samples. Um, it's really neat to, to see what what's happening the students are driving all the research but it's uh i help out however i can and and uh but other than that there's not much happening right now it's been i'd say it's been quite slow ever since covid so all research got shut down it took several months before we we were even allowed to take the boat out again i you know i know that's three years ago but i still still feel like we're slow to get back into the or maybe it's a function of the 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 faculty here you know it all depends on what faculty have what grants to do work and so it's always changing some years are super busy some years are not and every year is different and okay so right now it seems a little bit slow oh you just answered the question i was going to ask uh, <laughs> if you have seasonal um patterns with your work but yeah definitely it sounds like it's just random it is it's very random mm -hmm. yeah i mean you know the numbers i came up with earlier my number of days at sea i keep a spreadsheet and so you can see year by year how it just goes up and down and there's no pattern at all to it it's uh 
You never know what you're going to get. <laughs> In fact, this interview was supposed to be a couple of weeks ago, and then you suddenly had to rush that's out right. to sea. Yeah, that's right. Uh, had to go back out on the water. The We went out to collect water to, well, try and collect microplastics in the Fraser River for this project. And because it was right in the peak of the freshette, um, there's so much sediment in the water that the student wasn't able to get more than, I think it was 15 or 20 liters of water through their filter before it, it stopped filtering. And so uh, you need way more water than that to get a good microplastic sample. So we kind of had to shift gears and we went back. We went back a week later, which is why we had to postpone our interview. We went back to just collect a bunch of water in, in carboys and then let it sit. So all the sediment settles to the bottom and then they can get a better, better sample. So the things happen all the time where you're out at sea and it doesn't happen. Things don't work out the way you think they we're going to have several examples of things going haywire while on on the boat. That actually leads perfectly to the next question. Um, one of my favorite questions in these interviews is hearing about field stories. Uh, you work in the field. I've never actually been to the field. Um, it sounds like a crazy place where things can be very frustrating for you and very entertaining for me. <laughs> Would you care to share any field stories? I have, I have tons of field stories, but in, in preparing for this interview, I was trying to think of some good ones and they all seem to revolve around things going wrong. And I, <laughs> the so best I have kind. three stories of one of the, one of which is things going completely wrong. One is things going wrong, but kind of funny and you got to laugh at it afterwards. And then the, the third one is things going wrong, but ending up in a most amazing way. So like the first, yeah, a good example of things going really wrong is, uh, I was on a research cruise five years ago where basically absolutely nothing, I got absolutely no data for this scientist. Um, I was supposed to pilot the glider in the Iceland sea in the middle of winter. And I was super excited and we got out there on this ship and like, and I must say, and I might preface this by saying no, no one has ever really gone out to study this in the middle of winter. It's it, for a good reason, right? You're in, <laughs> in the North Atlantic in February or January, whenever it was, it is awful. And so a lot of research cruises tend to occur in the good weather, <laughs> maybe, maybe not good weather, but summer months. I don't know. Anyways, we were out in Iceland Sea, nevertheless, in the middle of winter. And, and finally it was my day to put the glider in the water and within two hours, maybe four hours, the most awful sound. So on the computer that, that talks to the glider basically beeps or does a little thing when the glider's at the surface. So, you know, it's there and then you can talk to it and give it commands and whatnot. But there's one sound you never want to hear. And it's, uh, I wish I could replicate it. Well, it's a siren type. No, I, um, never mind. I can't even do it. <laughs> Anyways. So the computer starts making this awful sound and, you know, instantly, that the glider is aborted, something has gone terribly wrong, sitting at the surface, crying for help. So tried to troubleshoot and see if we could figure it out. And the time window was closing. The ship had to go somewhere else. Or like, we can't spend any more time talking to it and trying to figure anything out either. Leave it in the water and it'll be there for another few days or weeks or we go get it now and we move on so we basically went to get it and and picked it up so the, the our first attempt at getting this thing in the water was a complete and total failure realized that um we're missing a key part to to fix it and so at our half halfway point in this cruise we had a part flown in from north america so on the second half of the cruise we're ready to try all over again and to make a very long story short the same thing happened the second time we put it in the water within four hours woo, woo, sirens 
going off. Um, and we went to get it. And this was, it was actually kind of fun. We uh, got to go in a Zodiac in the open ocean in the middle of winter in Iceland to go pick this thing up. And that was the worst weather I've ever been in a small boat in in my life. <laughs> the, the driver was great and knew exactly how to handle this Zodiac, but it was very wet and cold ride to go get this this glider and bring it back on board so we had on this entire month-long cruise we had two attempts both of which failed immediately and got so spent thousands and thousands of dollars getting me and all this equipment to to iceland for absolutely nothing it's the worst feeling it is that's probably my worst field story (laughs) um Another, so my other things gone bad story is um, Rich Pavlovich and I were on Powell Lake and we were working in the middle of the night. So what happens is we're trying to take these measurements that um, are super, super sensitive. And so we're lowering our instrument at a super slow rate and we want the water to be as calm as possible and powell lake being a huge a very big lake um the winds usually pick up during the day there's boaters going around creating wakes and so um daytime just isn't a good time if you want to do super sensitive measurements from a boat so we we're going to work in the middle of the night and so we get out there at 9 or 10 p.m. after having dinner, we get this instrument in the water. And, and because all the measurements we want to do are down between... So the Powell Lake is a very deep lake, about 350 meters. And most of the important area that we want to measure is down between, let's say, 200 meters and the bottom. And so we've basically, we put this instrument in at 10 o'clock and we do a super slow profile and we're doing what we're called toyoing. So we don't bring it all the way up to the surface because we'd waste time. So we bring it up to about 200 meters, move the boat to the next location, you know, a few hundred meters away and then start over again. So we do this all night long up and down the lake, super slow profiling, move the boat, super slow profiling, move the boat. So the instrument is in the water for about five or six hours. So around 4 a.m., it's time for time for us to call it quits and go back to the dock, pull the instrument all the way up to the surface, and we notice that the syringe is still attached to the CTD. So it, this is something we normally attach a syringe with water on it to keep things wet and lubricated when the CTD is not in the water, but you have to remove it before you put it in the water. So we it comes out of the water after six hours in the middle of the night, and we both see the syringe attached to it. And we didn't say a word. Rich and I looked at each other. Not a word was said. We brought it on board. We went slowly back to the dock. Yeah, it was an awful, awful feeling. So that's the one you can sort of laugh at, you know? So you wasted a night of awful. <laughs> like working through the night's never really fun, but when you do it for absolutely nothing, it makes, somehow makes it worse. But it's easy to laugh at it now. That was, you know, 10 years ago or so. Now, the last one has a really good ending. This is one of my actually favorite stories from work here at UBC. And so we were, I was working with a student of Roger Becky's on the Fraser River, and he wanted to get a freeze core. Do you know what a freeze core is? Okay, so a freeze core is basically a... You're, you're freezing the mud onto this core. So you hammer this long needle-like thing into the sediment. And you, through the inside of it, you pump uh, often a, um, a slurry of dry ice methanol, something very cold. And then you just let it sit there in the sediment. And the, and the, the sediments freeze to, excuse, freeze to the outside of this core. And so the longer you let it sit, the bigger hopefully the bigger diameter core you get. So this thing was in the, in the sand in the bottom of the Fraser river for, I think it might've been 45 minutes or something. And then the student decides, okay, we're done. It's time to bring it up. So I, you know, start up the winch and it is not budging. 
at all. Not, and we have a, at the time we had a super powerful winch on the boat. And so it's basically pulling the edge, the gunnel, the boat down towards the water, right? It's, and it's not budging at all. This thing is very seriously stuck in the mud in the bottom of, of the Fraser river. We tried everything we could, uh, and it just wasn't budging. So finally, I mean, we have to get back to UBC somehow. We're basically anchored to the bottom of the Fraser River. So he calls Roger and he explains the situation. We just cannot get this core out. So we decided to call it quits. We're going to sacrifice the core, cut the cord, perhaps even attach it to a buoy and try to go back the next day and get it, whatever. But cut our losses and go home. So we were able to cut the main line that was holding the, holding the, us, uh, that we were holding the, the core to us. Um, but there was still one other piece of tubing that, uh, fed the, I don't know if it was liquid nitrogen or the dry ice methanol slurry feeding the cold stuff into the core. And it's a braided metal Y or a braided metal tube. And so it's, it's attached with a pretty serious fitting to the core. It's uh, connected to the boat in a way that we can't remove it. So this is the, we're still tethered to the bottom with this thing. Mm -hmm. And so, and we couldn't, we had nothing on board that we could cut this tubing with because it's, it's metal tubing, braided metal tubing. So we decided to try the brute force approach. We're going to stretch this thing and, and at some point it's going to snap. And so I wrapped the, the, the metal tubing around the, the barrel, around the, on the winch and, you know, gave it a few wraps on the winch and basically tried pulling on it with the wrench and with the winch. And the goal here is to break this thing so we can go home. Because right now there, we can't even, there's no way we could get back to UBC. We have something that's attached to a major instrument on board the boat and it's attached to the core in the bottom. We have nothing on board that can cut it. We're kind of in a precarious situation here. We need this thing to snap and break. So we put tons and tons of tension on this braided metal tube and it's stretched like you would not believe. And it's just not breaking. And so there were three of us on board, me, the student and Jorn, the machinist. And I thought, okay, well, we're going to use the force of the boat to help us break this thing. So we're basically, we're going to walk to one side of the boat and then to the other and rock the boat back and forth. And hopefully on one of these rockings, the thing's going to just break and we can go home. So we do this. It must've looked hilarious from the shore, three grown men trying to rock a boat in the middle of the Fraser river. So we're rocking the boat. And what happens every time the, the boat goes down, towards the, the core, the winch turns an inch or two. And so what actually was happening is we, we were successful and we were actually pulling this thing out of the mud Oh, without realizing we're like, the goal is to break it so we can go home. Like we had given up on the core. We wanted to go home, but instead the core is slowly but surely coming out of the sediment by us rocking the boat back and forth. And then after a few rockings and it's coming up like an inch every time, finally it just let free and came up to the, came rocketing up to the surface. So the end result is we got the most beautiful, <laughs> magnificent core out of the Fraser river. It was more than anything the student could have possibly wished for. Yes. We damaged the core in the process. We broke a few things, but we'd already sort of written off the core. Like we, it was, the decision had been made to leave it on the bottom of the Fraser River. <laughs> Instead, we came home with a slightly broken core, a magnificent, beautiful, long uh, freeze core from the Fraser River. And the student only needed one good core for his project. So we basically accomplished what needed to be done and then some while basically trying to break this thing and so that we could just go home. Yeah, it was, and so we got back to UBC, and Roger was, Roger Becky was head at the time, and and so we told him what happened, and yeah, it was it was a very much a um, a successful failure. <laughs>
that's amazing. And yeah, yeah I'm glad it worked out in the end. Exactly. Um, it sounds like with a lot of your experience and a lot of your, your stories, uh, you need to draw on a lot of mechanical and um, uh, electrical and just uh, handy skills as well. Yeah, that that's... And I don't have any formal training in any of this. This is all things you learn on the job. It, 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 I, I think it's the same working a, an instrument in the lab or like any, any monkey can operate it when it's running well. But, um, you know, where you really earn your keep is being able to troubleshoot things and think outside the box and, and fix things on the fly. Like that's... That, that's the most important part of the job, I'd say. And like when things go well, it's easy. Anyone can do it. It's where you really set yourself aside is how to, how, how you deal with adversity, which happens all the time in the field. And yeah. Yeah, that's great. If anyone's listening who um, is interested in going into oceanography, but isn't um, quite as uh, scientifically minded and is more mechanically minded, uh, this is the role for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's uh and so I call myself a jack of all trades and obviously master of none. <laughs> and then you've got the scientific background too, so you can understand uh, what you're and appreciate what you're doing. I do. I, 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 yeah, that's right. If you just had sort of the mechanical aspect to it uh, and you didn't understand the science, it, it would definitely be a different job. But uh, understanding where people are going and what they're trying to do and... Understanding the science is, is uh, I think, is super important. Yeah, I hope that the people I work with appreciate that. Yeah. Your work sounds um, terrifying, <laughs> but also really exciting. Um, being on a Zodiac in the middle of the North Atlantic in February uh, would give me nightmares. Um, <laughs> although it also sounds like you have a lot of fun with your research. Um, certainly that submarine uh, story sounds very romantic. Yeah. They're, they're, I, I know a lot of the examples I gave are things going wrong, but there's a very wonderful, positive part of this job is, um, see, yeah, like I get to work with lots of amazing people. I've seen so many amazing parts of the world. I've been to every ocean in the world, so Indian Ocean once, been to the Arctic several times, Antarctic several times, um, all the way across the Atlantic several times in the Pacific. Yeah, it's it, uh, seen some absolutely wonderful and beautiful parts of the world as part of the job. So um, I, I feel lucky. Yeah, and had some wonderful experiences on board. Some of these ships have made some amazing friends. Lots of my longest friends are people that I've worked with and, and, or met on ships or worked for in various places. And, and so it's been rewarding both in seeing the world and, in, and, and in meeting some really amazing people. So and it's I, I feel blessed. Yeah. It sounds like you also get to exercise a lot of intellectual freedom and, um, you know, solve problems, um, in your own way. It, it, it's never formulaic. Um, never formulaic. Like with that incident with the, uh, the frozen core. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm curious, what is the, uh, the best part of your work? What is the best part of my work? Yeah, I guess the, I'd have to, the, I mean, the field work is, because I do spend a lot of time in the lab as well, analyzing samples and, or, or if people need me to run experiments or help with instrumentation or other things. And I, I do spend a fair amount of time maintaining equipment and, um, but all that is the boring side of the job. The, and a lot of time in the office, crunching data and analyzing data and, keeping things running, but, uh, the, the best part is being out in the field for sure. And I've, it, it's a bit harder now because I have young kids. So I've, I've spent a lot of, it used to be that I would 
chase down any opportunity to be in the field. And now I, I, I think I like to be a bit more choosy. It's nice that we have, um, two people. So my colleague, Laura can take some of the field work as well. And I, I feel like the last few years with having young kids, I, I'm, uh, less like, yeah, more likely to, to ask Laura to do the work instead or, yeah. It's interesting how those, um, personal changes in your personal life can, uh, impact your professional life and, um, in, in that way. Yeah. The kids, but, but when I do go in the field, I feel like the kids do live a bit vicariously through me and I like, you know, take lots of pictures and videos and lots of great stories for them. So I, they, they think daddy has a great job. <laughs> I'm sure they do. Do you ever take them with you? Um, no, unfortunately, uh, you know, times have changed. It used to be, you could take anyone out with you. I, I, you know, I've taken my mother out on the boat and my father and, but I, I feel like, um, part of it is maybe COVID, but also just sort of, uh, regulations have changed a lot in the last few years. It's, it's a lot more paperwork to even to, to any time we go out on the boat and, and rightfully so like safety is super important and having the right, um, safety procedures in place is, is it's not the wild west like it used to be it's much more re regulated now i think a lot of it stemmed from uh, this there was an incident several years ago where a emeritus professor died on the coast doing some some field work and and i think all the universities in bc have really it really shook them and and everyone made sure that all the safety procedures are really up to snuff since since then yeah it's funny when a lot of those safety procedures get implemented, uh, people bemoan that, um, you know, that people are going overboard, but then you hear stories from like five, 10, 15 years ago. And like you said, it sounds like the wild west and yeah. you think to yourself, I can't believe that people thought that that was, um, acceptable and <laughs> just, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I also roll my eyes a bit sometimes at some of the required policies or procedures uh, in place, but, but it, it's there for a reason and, and we do it and it, it's, uh, I feel like you're right. We're much safer now. <laughs> yeah. We, I don't let anyone touch our winch anymore. It used to be that, um, you know, anyone could do it. I had an incident regarding a, a researcher in my very first year on the job where I, I was on a, a Zodiac. So not on our boat, but like 20 feet away on a Zodiac doing something. And, and he was operating the winch and, and I guess I hadn't trained him sufficiently. And anyways, the, the winch broke off its uh, base and, and went flying in the air and, and so no one was seriously injured, but, but it was very eye opening experience of like what can go wrong or could have gone wrong. And, and ever since, ever since then, I don't let anyone touch the winch. I'm like, this is, it's fine. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I asked about the best part of your job. What about the worst part? Oh, analyzing nutrients. <laughs> that was fast. <laughs> oh, I, I hate it. I've been, so I learned to an, use a nutrient auto analyzer in grad school, uh, 93 to 96 at McGill university. And I was good at it. I mean, I'm it's anal, it's analytical work. I, I somehow, um, I don't know. It just, I was good at it. We used to have contests at the, Another student there at the time, Adrian Marchetti, he's now at University of North Carolina. We would have contests who would have, who would, could have the, who could make the best standard curve. Like he'd come running up to me and say, I got 9.9999. And I don't know, I got 0.99999. Anyway, so I, I learned in grad school to analyze nutrients and it's followed me ever since. I can't avoid it. Um, my job right after grad school at the university of Montreal was analyzing nutrients for the summer in, uh, in the lab there. And then when I got to Atlanta, we bought a nutrient analyzer and I, that was my job. And, and then 
same thing here. Like I just, everywhere I go, I'm the nutrient analyst and I, I really don't like it. I'm very good at it, but I don't like it. So I, I, I'm a, I'm a very good procrastinator. I, I, I try to only run the instrument two or three times a year. I save up several hundred samples and then I commit to it for two or three weeks at a time, get it all done and, and <laughs> move on to for the, a few months. So, um, yeah, but it's, it's necessary people. It's a necessary, some people need their nutrient data. And so I, I do it begrudgingly. <laughs> there are some skills you wish you'd never picked up. Yeah, absolutely. I do wish I didn't, I haven't, I do wish I had never become the nutrient analyst. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Now, aside from being a nutrient analyst, I'm curious, um, do you identify as belong to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that impacted your studies or your career in any way? I'm afraid I don't have a good answer for that. I am no not, no, I, I'm a white male who's learning, learning the way through this new world that we live in. And, and yeah. Speaking of which, do you find that oceanography is a really uh, open and welcoming uh, field for diverse communities or is it more closed off and insular? I think it's very well, open and welcoming. There's absolutely nothing prevent anyone from doing oceanography diverse communities are welcome i there's all kinds of people that have come out on the boat and 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 some some are better in the field than others that's for sure i've i've encountered lots of students that were great in the field and some that weren't and and but it, it really yeah i think what sets them apart is their passion and and has nothing to do with whether they're a minority or whatever diverse community they might come from. It's very welcoming, I would think, from my perspective. One demographic I can imagine would uh, struggle uh, would be those who suffer from seasickness. Is there a oh. place in oceanography for those people too? There definitely is a place for them. You, you just have to tough it up. So two, <laughs> tough it. Like two of our faculty... You know, there's not that many oceanographers in this department and two of them get awfully seasick anytime they're on a, a boat in rough weather and this is the career they've chosen and they're good at it. And so um, I, I used to think I was invincible. My first few cruises, I didn't really get seasick. But now I know I'm not invincible. <laughs> oh, I changes. I, I see, uh, you know, when we're out on the on our little boat, and like around here in the Strait of Georgia or in the river, not a big deal. I don't get sick. But on a big research cruise, um, I always get sick now. And it's what what separates people is is how quickly you get over. I think most people get seasick. What separates people is how quickly you get over it. Um, some, some people, and I think Laura might be in that category, never, rarely get seasick, but I think most other people do experience it to some, one, some extent or another. And for me, I, I, I know I'm going to get sick, but I also know I'm going to get better within, I'd say 24 to 48 hours. So the first day on board, yeah, not pleasant. <laughs> But, you know, I also find that it, I don't notice it as much when I'm busy working. So that that first day on a long cruise, you're busy setting things up. And so it's usually a, quite a hectic day and go, go, go. You don't really have time for seasickness, if that makes sense. Like uh, seasickness, a lot of it is is psychological, at least from my perspective. And so you don't have, I don't have time to get sick. I'm busy. And then at the end of the day, after dinner, sit down, relax, and then you, then it hits you. <laughs> and so, and my experience is within 24 hours. So by the, sometime the next day, my system will have adjusted and I'll be fine. And then the rest of the cruise, whether it's two weeks or two months or whatever, you're usually fine. And so... There's a lot of people that get seasick and still do oceanography, and that should not be a hindrance to anyone. You, you just got to know that it will get better. 
for most people. Some people never get sick. And some I've known some people that spent seven days in their cabin throwing up. And, and yeah, so, I, you know, I think there are exceptions to every rule. But in general, don't let that stop you. Try it out. And there's always lab work, too. <laughs> there's always lab work. Yeah. So it's less fun, but yeah, definitely. Now, you touched on this earlier. Um, I am curious. One thing that's affected everyone has been the pandemic. Uh, how did COVID impact your work? Oh, it pretty much shut down field work. Um, the first few months, the university was closed. Everyone was working from home. There's not all that much that a oceanographic technician can do from home. You know, I do have some administrative stuff that I can do, but it, it's not a whole lot. And so, um, you know, a, a big part of this job is hands-on, whether it's working in the field or in the lab or with equipment or um, you kind of need to be here. And so for the first few months, I wasn't, we weren't allowed here. And But then when, as soon as the building opened up to anyone, uh, we were in, Laura and myself were in the first wave of people allowed back in the building because really all of our work is hands-on in the building. And so how did COVID affect our work? The, yeah, the first few months, nothing happened. But then after that, we were able to be here doing, we'd have to share office time, share lab time and all that stuff. But uh, at least we were able to get some work done after, after the first, the initial three months. Um, and then, you know, a lot of the, the research projects just were shut down immediately. Most of them didn't start up again. So I don't, I think the first time I was back out on the boat was, okay, well, the last time we were on the boat was in March of 2020. I don't think we were back on the boat at all that year. I think it was probably might have been February 2021 when the next time we wow. were back in the field and that was uh, the Bamfield course. So normally we t every year I help teach this uh, methods in oceanography course at Bamfield. It's wonderful. It's a beautiful part of the world. Spend a week there in the winter. It's always lovely. Teach students the skills required to be oceanographers. It's a really great course. But uh, so that that the first year of the pandemic. So February, 2021, um, we did all of that from here and it was awful. <laughs> just uh, each, just because be, because we couldn't get that many students on the boat at a time, we're using our departmental boat. I think we were limited to three, maybe four maximum because of COVID, right? Even though it's an open space, we didn't want to crowd crowd the boat. And so it was basically me and two or three students at a time over and over and over again. And like one day it snowed. It was not, it was not great. So it's Banfield is definitely a better place to do it. They have many boats that we use. So you can get three groups of five or six students each out at the same time doing research so they you know they get out every day at Banfield here when we had the course here some students only got out on the boat once some students twice really tough so yeah it was a tough year wow yeah. and then as far as research projects go yeah there, that was 2021 was very slow there was a couple of things we did but it yeah it hasn't re didn't really pick up i'd say till 2022 and, and like i mentioned earlier it hasn't we're not we're still not back to sort of what i would call normal uh, field work uh, quantity of, you know workload i should say is it's not uh, it's not high <laughs> Funny. Some uh, some of the people I've talked to have said COVID was you know no nah, no big deal, um, didn't really impact their work. But for you, it seems like it was more of a wrecking ball. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it does. Other than, 
I don't know if wrecking balls, right? You know, it certainly impacted the field research, but we, you know, other than that, those first couple of months, we were allowed back in the building to do the work we do in the lab and in, in the in the building here. So it wasn't so bad. It was nice and quiet. I think the first wave we we're at a 30% capacity maximum and you rarely saw anyone in the building. Like when you saw someone in the hall, you're like, Oh, wow, someone's there. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's kind of, sometimes it's kind of nice to work on your own and yeah. Your job sounds fascinating and I feel like I've only just scratched the surface on what you do. Um, I can tell there's a lot more uh, <laughs> lurking beneath. But um, if anyone's listening and they want to follow in your footsteps, what advice or um, experience would you recommend they pursue to become the next SeaTech? Uh, you know, lots of people have said, oh, I would love your job over the years. And it's, it is such a unique position. It's not something I dreamed of when I was even a college student, oh, I'm going to become a C-Tech and it just happened. And so, and there's very few jobs like this in the world. So, um, so in my case, being at the right place at the right time was, was key, but I also had all the necessary experience. I spent a lot of time learning instruments in the lab. I knew like the nutrient analysis part was important and, and lots of, I knew lots of other, how to operate lots of other instruments. So I had that side of things down pat. I had done lots of field work. So never turn up an opportunity to go in the field, just even to help out however you can. Um, yeah, get as much field experience and lab experience as you, as you can at all. And you never know where it's going to lead, right? Maybe turn up some experiences if they're four months in the Arctic. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said, I was pretty um, naive at the time and, and uh, to some that might seem crazy, but it was a, it was a great experience. I, it was one of my better cruises, you know, a lot, lots of fun. I learned how to play bridge on that cruise. Oh. And, and then when I went, met my, uh, now my wife, but when I, uh, met her family, they were all bridge players and, and my wife doesn't play cards at all. And so they were, they were so excited that to, that, you know, her new boyfriend knew how to play bridge because they needed that fourth person. I'm like, yep. And I learned on a research cruise in the Arctic. <laughs> You've been uh, very inspiring today, uh, and I know going through um, through a master's program can be very trying. I'm curious, who inspired you uh, when you're doing your education? Uh, a series of professors slash supervisors I've had. Like I think I mentioned earlier in my second year ecology class, Scott Finlay at the University of Ottawa. I don't even know if he's still there or retired, but so he was the first inspiration to study ecology and limnology. And, and then, um, my honor supervisor, Dr. David Curry, um, was wonderful. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so uh, all my supervisors over the years have been really great role models and people to look up to and inspired me. And, you know, I, then I went on to do my grad studies at McGill with, uh, with Neil Price. He was, he was great too. So like, everyone that I've worked with or for has been, has nudged me in the right direction in one way or another. And that same with Joe Montoya, I, he wasn't a, uh, supervisor. I mean, he was my boss basically in Atlanta. So like, I'd say those, the, yeah, all these people have helped. And, and even, you know, when I started at, in this job here, working with Philippe and Maite, they've helped mold me into who I am and, and have been quite inspiring. And I did a lot of work early on with uh, Claudio DeBacco, who's not here anymore, but uh, um, he was uh, a really great, uh, yeah, role model for me in many ways. Um, He's now in, in Halifax, but uh, 
a number of scientists is my answer. My supervisors and bosses over the years have all been people that have I've looked up to and and have really helped me become who I am now. That's wonderful. It's always good to hear when supervisors and bosses are are good mentors. Um, and now you're paying it forward clearly with um, every generation of oceanography student that comes through. I, I'd like to think so. I, like uh, one tiny small part in in helping the students uh, figure out what they want to do. Right. Some people come out and they don't ever want to do field work ever again. And others are like, wow, this is great. I love it. And so, yeah, I try to be the best I can for the next generation, for sure. Speaking of the next generation, um, I find that uh, every field changes at lightning speed these days. Um and the field that you start in at the beginning of your career can be unrecognizable by the time that you retire. What that changes do you see coming down the pipe with oceanography? And what advice do you have for young people to uh, get ahead of the curve? That's a great question. And it's so true. Um, I'd say oceanography used to be a, a lot more um, manual, hands-on, uh, analog, you know, taking reading temperature profiles off like little tiny things etched on uh, like nothing was electronic. It was all sort of physical uh, and now everything is controlled by computers. And so I am, I am not super technologically adept. I've, I've learned what I've needed to over the years, but it's, you know, I feel like the next generation already has a step up on me as far as software and hardware. So like, I think nowadays every, every student, um, does a lot with technology, but uh, technology has certainly changed oceanography. And so uh, I think there's still a whole lot of understanding electronics. That's very important. Uh, and I, I, I have no formal education in electronics. It's all things I've picked up on the job, but yeah, I think understanding computers, software, hardware, and electronics are all super important in oceanography moving forward. Yeah. So moving away from like Jacques Cousteau and yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I'm, I I don't want to compare myself to Jacques Cousteau, but I'm much closer to a Jacques Cousteau than to a, uh, what's a good electronic surgery or computer person. Anyways. (laughs) Do you own a beanie? Do I own a beanie? (laughs) We don't call them beanies. I'm from Quebec. We call them toques. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I own a toque and it's got a seabird written all over it. That's the major company that they make the best CTDs in the world. In fact, when I, so when I started this job, this goes back to sort of hands-on training. When I started this job, uh, I basically learned everything I needed to know about CTDs from Rich Pavlovich and on sort of learned it on the fly. But now you can go to Seabird University. And so they spend a week in Seattle and you learn all about it. And, and so I think if I were to start the same job now, 20 years later, it I would be starting out much farther ahead than I did 20 years ago. <laughs> when engineers graduate, they get the uh, steel ring. When oceanographers graduate, they should get a, an honorary toque. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good idea. An honorary toque. Yeah. <laughs> um, instead of uh, talking about starting out, I'd now like to look uh, toward your future. Um, Retirement is still a long ways off, but I would like you to uh, contemplate what would you like to have as your personal professional legacy when you eventually do retire? Well, I think you touched upon that not that long ago with one of your questions about the next generation. I I would like to have helped some students find their way in oceanography and and have played some small part in it. I, I would like like to think that I share my knowledge and experience freely with anyone who 
spend some time on the boat with me and and try to teach other people what I know. And and I think if and and a lot of this, uh, you know, has the week in Banfield teaching, you know, methods course has a big is a big part of that as well. I, I if I can help. Yeah, if I played some small part in having someone find their their path in life in oceanography or otherwise, then that's that's fine by me. I'm I'm not. Uh, yeah, great. I think that's a a commendable legacy. Chris, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Um, before I let you go, is there anything you want to add or anything I missed? I can't think of anything. I've talked about all my fun field stories and I can't think of anything else that I'd like to share. Perfect. Well, thank you for sharing all that you did. Um, again, I feel uh, like I know you a little better, uh, but I also feel like there's so much more that I never even imagined. <laughs> um, it sounds fascinating. You're clearly passionate about your work. Uh, thanks for sharing that and have a great day. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor, Sarah Robertson, and Ollie Beattie designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences here at the University of British Columbia. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcast.